We're going to come right back to 1 Corinthians 15 in just a second, but if you would go to Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18. Uh, I was reflecting as we were singing that last song together in particular. Being with other people who really want to worship God makes you want to worship God. And that's an important energy that God gives us uh, through our times together like this. And not just in the songs that we sing, as passionately as we may sing them, but in the lives that we're trying to live every day and to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. And so uh, thank God for moments like this when we're able to drive each other deeper into the heart of God and to be filled more and more with the Spirit of God. Whenever the Apostle Paul showed up in the city of Corinth, it was not a very uh, Jesus kind of place. It wasn't really a very godly place, though there were many gods in that city, many gods. Uh, Corinth, the ancient city, was um, a place full of worldly culture, um, ancient and modern at the same time. Uh, Commerce, the brightest and best thinkers, and certainly many different religious views filled that city. And to go along with all that, there was all sorts of activity folks were engaging in. A lot of it, not godly at all. Not moral, not ethical, not good at all. When Paul was there, the Lord came to him in a vision, which is actually kind of a, a rare thing, at least as it's recorded in Scripture. There's only a handful of times whenever it's recorded that Paul had the Lord appear to him. In Acts chapter 18, and beginning in uh, verse 9, it says, The Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid any longer. Implication being, Paul had been afraid while he was in that city. But go on speaking, and do not be silent. Perhaps that means that Paul was either thinking about stopping speaking, or he already had stopped speaking, and Jesus wanted to encourage him in that. For I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you. For I have many people in this city. In other words, Jesus said, don't be scared. Nobody can mess with you when I'm on your side. And don't stop talking, because there's too many people here that are mine, that just don't know it yet, that need to hear about the good news. So Paul settled there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. And a lot of really amazing and wonderful things happen in the city of Corinth. Um, and there was all kinds of people who did come to faith. So much so that we have two letters that were written to the Corinthians and others that are referenced. This is a group that was near and dear to Paul's heart. He cared about them deeply and wanted what was good for them. Uh, I wonder what he preached about. I mean, there it says that he went on preaching and teaching for a year and a half. What kinds of stuff was Paul talking about with them? These people that were a part of a pagan culture, a materialistic culture, an immoral culture that were far away from God. You can almost imagine being back there in that city and and all these people, neighbors of yours, who used to go with you to the idols' temples, who used to participate with you in all kinds of, well, you wouldn't think them as sinful, you just think them as normal, regular sort of stuff to do. Partying and drinking and having sex with whoever you want to have sex with and all sorts of things like that. And all of a sudden, your neighbors and friends start changing. They don't do that stuff anymore. Matter of fact, and they're kind of particular about it, they let you know. And not in any sort of 
self-righteous kind of way, but just in a factual, I, sorry, I can't keep doing the stuff we used to do together. And you might say, well, what's going on, man? You say, well, I met this man. He's from Tarsus. Strange little guy, honestly. He's not the best talker, but he really believes something that I'd never known before, and he's proven it to be true. And he's told me to follow this one named Jesus. He's the Savior of the world, the Lord of the whole world. And it's changed everything for me. And actually, there's a whole group of us that believe it. Uh, we all meet at Chloe's house and Christmas's house, some of us. You might say to your neighbor, what are you talking about? Nobody does the kind of stuff y'all are doing. And why would you listen to this Paul guy? What's the deal here, man? What is it that you people believe? You people who follow this Jesus, what is it that you really believe in? That's just the imagined version of our question. What was Paul teaching these folks? What was Paul telling people that the Jesus people believe? Well, the great thing is, in Paul's letters to the Corinthians, we actually pretty much know exactly what Paul taught there. Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Do you notice the opening line of the, the reading that Michael brought to us? 1 Corinthians 15, listen to how Paul introduces, really not introduces, reminds them. Verse 1, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel, the good news, which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which you are saved, if you hold fast the word or the message that I preached to you, unless you believed it in vain, or maybe we could say it this way, unless you believed it and it didn't mean anything at all, after all. Do you hear what Paul's saying? He's like, I'm just reminding you guys of the stuff I already told you about, the stuff that the Jesus people believe. Now, who cares about what was going on in Corinth thousands of years ago? Uh, I mean, I guess we do because we get a lot of information from that. But what I mean is for us in terms of the way we think and live, we don't really care about what exactly was being thought by the Corinthian culture or the neighbors of the, the believers there in Corinth. But what we do care about is what are we supposed to believe? If we really do believe all the things we just sang about Jesus, or if you're here today and you're not sure what you believe about Jesus, you need to know. What is it that the Jesus people believe? Those who are following Him and serving Him and trust in Him and love Him, what is it that we believe? So I'd like to suggest to you uh, three tenets, three pillars of our belief. Our, maybe we could think about it this way, our worldview. Um, you know, there's some things you believe that you just believe. You believe in your favorite sports team. You believe that your particular coffee shop is the best coffee shop in Brooklyn. Whatever it is, you believe this stuff. But there's more fundamental underlying beliefs that guide all of our lives. And every human being has this, some sort of fundamental pillars that hold up every decision, every activity, every relationship that we have. And the language we use for that is our worldview. And that's different depending on where you come from, how you were raised, what your experiences are, what your education was, what your work life is, all sorts of things form your worldview. But most of all for us, the thing that forms our worldview, the thing that holds up how we live and what we do and what we think, is what we believe about Jesus. And so I'd like to suggest to you three pillars of uh, our worldview that the Apostle Paul preached and brought out to the Corinthians, that Jesus came to Paul, and it was so important that Paul would keep on preaching, that Jesus had to personally come and give him a vision to say, don't stop, don't stop talking about this. This is what they need. This is what the whole world needs to believe. All right, you ready? Here's number one. Do you notice in the text the first thing 
that we believe as Jesus' people. Verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. The first pillar of what the Jesus people believe is Christ and Him crucified. Christ and Him crucified. And I know that's a, a kind of strange way of talking, but I want to show you that's actually what Paul said. Uh, and so that's why I'm talking this way. He mentions Jesus' death here. But go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul reminds his brethren here of what he spoke about when he was with them. And he's actually making the point that uh, I'm not... I wasn't speaking to you guys with fancy philosophy like all your Greco-Roman philosophers of the day. But listen to what he says. Chapter 2, verse 1. He says, And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, that is, of the world, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing except among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's all I wanted to know. That's all I wanted to talk about. That was my message to you guys. Christ and Him crucified. Uh, let's break this down just a little bit here. So, uh, Christ. The word Christ means the anointed one. The Messiah, who, as he says in chapter 15, had been promised throughout the Scriptures for centuries. All the prophets, going back Moses to Samuel to David and uh, Isaiah and Jeremiah, you just keep on going all through the prophets, all pointed toward this figure whom God would send, who would be the Lord of all. We'll talk more about that in just a second. But who would bring restoration and salvation to mankind. He would be the great one. And frankly, all of us have people like that that we look to, Christ figures. You can name him all sorts of names besides Jesus. What we believe is that Jesus is the Christ the anointed one, the chosen one, the one who would make all of our wrongs right and who would fix all of our problems and would bring us back to what we ought to be, Jesus is the Christ. Now the strange part is that the Christ is the one who is crucified. In the Roman world, to be crucified was the most gruesome, horrifying, shameful death that a person could die. As a matter of fact, citizens of Rome weren't allowed to be crucified. It was too shameful. It was only people who had been conquered. They were the ones who were allowed. Most often it would have been people who were counted as slaves, who maybe had become slaves through war or economic hardship or whatever the case may be. It was a horrifying way to die. The worst of criminals. Jesus himself, when he was crucified, was with two thieves. The man who Jesus took the place of, Barabbas, was known as an insurrectionist. Someone who had stirred up trouble, no doubt costing other people their lives or at least their uh, livelihood in some manner. That was the death that the Christ, the chosen one, the anointed one, the one that God would send to make everything right, that was the death that he died. And actually, we should just stop right there and note that it's taken for granted that he died. This is a shocking and jolting thought. And yet, this is the pillar of our faith, is that Christ is the one who was crucified for our sins. Uh, now, that is why, by the way. It wasn't just to fulfill Scripture but it was for our sins. It was because of all the wrongs that we had done in order to set them right. The way that God dealt with that, and as strange as it may be, and frankly as um, nonsensical as it may seem to us, Christ was the one who would take the place of all mankind to pay the debt, the penalty that we owed God because of our misdeeds, because of our transgressions, because of our sins. Christ took our place. 
God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 20 says. What does this mean for us? That's a, a pillar of our faith. What the Jesus people believe is that he is the Christ, the one who is crucified. What does that mean for us? Well, back up to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, I don't remember if it was in his comments or in his prayer that Michael actually alluded to this. And of course, for those of you who this month, as we've been reading through 1 Corinthians, you remember this text because you've read it several times by now. And we're going to be discussing it more in depth in our Bible classes. But I want to bring our attention to this because it's such an important text. In 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 18, Paul talks about the meaning of this pillar of our faith, that it's Christ and Him crucified. In verse 18, Paul acknowledges, he says, you know, the word of the cross, the thought that the Savior of all would die this horrifying, shameful death reserved only for what the world thought of as the lowest of the low. He said the word of Christ and Him crucified is foolishness. It's foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. He goes on and says that God actually is proving that the wisdom of this world is nothing. It's worthless. It's meaningless. It's not anything worth trusting in. And God has proven that the wisdom of this world is honestly foolishness. But listen to verse 21. He says, For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe, who believe in Christ and Him crucified. This strange, foolish message. For indeed, Jews ask for signs, miraculous, powerful moments. Oh, wow, this is impressive. And the Greeks uh, seek wisdom, power of the intellect. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, in other words, to those who receive this message, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Do you notice what Paul's emphasizing as he talks about Christ and Him crucified and what the implication is for how we see the world? It means the things we used to be so impressed with, we have to stop being impressed with. Amen. All the powerful things, all the wise things, all the special things that draw our attention and think, wow, that's really something. If it's true that God crowned Jesus with glory and honor, that He lifted Him up above all others, that He really is the Christ and that He became the Christ through His crucifixion, through that shameful death in this world on the cross, if all that's true, if we believe that to be true, then it means all the other stuff is just foolishness. So all the pursuits that you thought were so important before, or maybe, frankly, that you may think are so important now, they're not. Having lots of money is not it. Being counted as so talented or impressive in your sphere of work, it's not it. Being so intelligent and educated and wise and well-read, it's not it. Being someone who's cultured, all those things that our world considers to be powerful things, they're meaningless now. They're foolishness. That's what he said. And he goes on and actually kind of points out, hey guys, you need to look in the mirror and you should know this already. Verse 26, For consider your calling, brethren. There were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. 
But God has chosen the foolish things of this world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that He may nullify or bring to nothing the things that are. Uh, maybe we should acknowledge here, there is power in being intelligent and having lots of money and being beautiful and being talented and all the things that the world says. There is power in them. Trust me, there really is. But he's saying what God has done through Christ is he's brought them to meaninglessness. That in the end, they are going to be dissolved into nothing so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us through the cross wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. We believe, as Jesus' people, we believe in Christ and Him crucified, the King of kings, crowned with glory and honor in the shame of the cross. That's what we believe. And it's an opposite message to everything that the world would tell us. And what that means is we don't believe in the world anymore. We don't believe in being the smartest person in the room. We don't believe in getting the most money. We don't believe in getting up the ladder of corporate success. That stuff is irrelevant to us. It's been brought to nothing. It's been nullified through the power and wisdom of the cross of Jesus Christ. That's not the only thing that Christ and Him crucified means. It also means that those things are nullified because those things which we normally would have trusted in and looked to and frankly would have even worshipped are not the true source of God or the path to God. You know, In our uh, very uh, modern society, we don't think about money and success and beauty and romance and intelligence and all those things. We don't think about them as spiritual beings themselves, but you know most people throughout most of the centuries have. They've attributed all those different things and said, oh, this is a God. Because frankly, all those things are fueled by spiritual forces of darkness. That's what makes them so appealing and that's what gives them power. And I don't, I'm not going to pretend to explain that. I don't know how, but that is how it's worked. And that's why every sensible human culture throughout history has attributed, oh, there must be a God behind wealth. There must be a God behind the earth. There must be a God behind love. There must be a God behind all these things that's driving them and giving them power. Christ in Him crucified has nullified the power of all those things in the world because Christ has revealed to us who the true God really is. Actually, this text pointed that out. Did you see that? Um, let's see, I lost it here. Well, verse 24 we see the power of God and the wisdom of God. And actually, if you back it up, there it is, verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. But we do. In Christ and Him crucified. That's why Paul would say this in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And actually, he alludes to it at the end where it talks about how Christ of chapter 1 is wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. He's all these things. He reveals to us the true nature of God. And in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 8 in verse 5, he says, For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. Paul not. there's all kinds of spiritual forces out there. There's all kinds of things you could trust in and rely upon or be scared of. But for us, there's just one God, the Father, from whom are all things and we exist for Him. And there's one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things and we exist through Him. Christ and Him crucified is the way that God has revealed His very nature to us, which means that God is nothing like we would have expected. Maybe you expected God to be vindictive or 
uncaring about humankind. It's not true. He sent His Son into the world to redeem us from our sins. Maybe you thought God was oppressive. He's not. He's a God who suffers right alongside of us. Maybe you thought God was one who is not really all that unique from all the other powers. There's many paths to fulfillment and enlightenment and all those things. It's not true because there's only one Christ. And the way we know that is not only through Christ's crucifixion, but now we're coming to pillar number two of our belief. We believe in Christ and Him crucified, but the only reason we believe that He's the Christ and that the cross meant anything at all is because He overcame the darkness of death. He overcame the darkness of death. Uh, go back to 1 Corinthians 15. You see that that's actually the key element here. Uh, right after talking about Jesus dying for our sins to fulfill the Scripture, and by the way, fulfilling the Scripture to prove who God is and what His nature is and all that sort of thing we just discussed. Uh, he pivots immediately to talking about Jesus' resurrection and really, really drills down the notion that we know it happened because there's literally hundreds of people who saw him on different occasions. Even me, Paul says. Even I saw him. I didn't even believe in him at the time. And he appeared to me. We know that not only he died, but he rose again. And this was so important to Paul, and he was really concerned that his brethren in Corinth were starting to doubt that Jesus overcame the darkness of death. Read in verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 15. He says, Now if Christ is preached, that good message of the cross, that he has been raised from the dead, how does someone among you say there's no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ had been raised. In other words, some of the people were saying, I don't know, this resurrection thing sounds kind of fairy ish or kind of spooky, hocus-pocus. I don't know if I can believe all that. It sounds kind of silly. He says, well, look, y'all, this is what we believe. Keep reading. If Christ has not been raised, then our whole message is in vain. It's empty. It's pointless. And what you believe as a Jesus person, as a Jesus father, what's even the point if he wasn't raised from the dead? Your faith is also in vain. Moreover, we're found to be false witnesses of God. The testimony we've given about God, it's a lie. It's not even true because uh, if Christ has not been raised, because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you're still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we're the most pathetic people you could ever meet. He goes on and says, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For by one man, death came. By a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For just as in Adam, as in man, all died, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, and after that, those who are Christ at his coming. Your apostle says, listen, man, this is our whole deal, is that Jesus really, really was raised from the dead. And I want to say this right now. Um, I'm not going to attempt to start getting to all the reasons and evidence for why you should believe that Jesus actually rose from the dead. That's not a fairy tale. That is not a made-up thing. That actually the claims of the resurrection are completely unique compared to all the claims of every other religious system that's ever existed. The claims about Jesus are more secure and more reliable than any other claim made of any other historical religious claim. Um, I'm not going to try to do that because then we'll just be here for several hours, which would be fun, I guess, for me and probably not for everybody else. And maybe not even for me at some point. So but here's my point. Here's why I'm saying this. I'm not going to delve into this, but if you're not sure about that, and if you're a Jesus follower, please ask. It's okay. 
These people were still Jesus followers and they weren't sure if the resurrection of the dead happened, period. Matter of fact, they were beginning to believe it did not. So don't be ashamed if you're questioning that or you doubt that. Just say something about it so we can talk about it and figure it out. And if you're listening and you say, oh, okay, this is the, I could kind of sort of, I wasn't really into the Christ being crucified thing, but I could at least see something admirable about that. But I can't believe that somebody came back from the dead. Um, and so therefore I can't be a Jesus follower. I understand that it sounds ridiculous. Um, but don't stop there. Just ask and give us a chance to actually explain it to you because I think you'll find the evidence very compelling and you'll want to follow Jesus too. But what does it mean that Jesus overcame the darkness of death? What does that mean? What's the implication of what we believe that he actually rose from the dead? What it means is, is that he wasn't just um, an admirable martyr. It means that he's the king of all. Amen. Continue in the text and notice that's what Paul's point is here in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, uh, he speaks about Christ's coming, and he says, then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. Do you notice, he talks about this future event, where at the end, Jesus is going to hand the kingdom authority back to the Father. The implication being, Jesus currently has the kingdom authority. Mm. By the way, if you think, and some people teach this, that uh, the kingdom has not yet come, that we're still praying for the kingdom to come. Well, it's true. In a sense, we're praying for God's kingdom to come in a wider way, more people to come into the kingdom. But God's kingdom is here, Amen. and Christ rules over it. That's happening right now. Amen. And Paul looks forward to this day when the kingdom will achieve its ultimate victory. Read on with what he says. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. Now, the point is, uh, God is not under Jesus' feet, but everything else. God has put everything else in subjection under Jesus' feet. And verse 28 continues, When all things are subjected to Him, then the Son Himself also will be subjected to the One who subjected all things to Him, so that God may be all in all. Jesus has overcome the darkness of death. And that means that He is King of kings and Lord of lords, and He reigns over the kingdom of God now, pointing forward to the day when all things... Well, we'll come to that in a second. Um, do you think about that if you're a Jesus follower? Do you think about that every day? That when you wake up, the reason why you reject all the powers of this world and you don't care about wisdom and glory and honor and rich, all that stuff, is because you're a part of a different kingdom. That Jesus and Him crucified is the wisdom of God proven by His resurrection and He's brought us into His covenant kingdom that we're a part of something different than everyone else it's just like if you get dropped off in a foreign country and some of you have done that by coming to this country and you thought oh this is strange and some of you've gone to other places you think i don't want to drive on that side of the road that's wrong not in well not in their kingdom in your kingdom it is but not in their kingdom do you understand while we're in this world we need to understand that we're members of the kingdom of heaven but we're people in enemy territory and so we're not attracted to the things of this world. We have a totally different lifestyle. We don't compare ourselves with the world. We don't even think about things the way the world does. This is why Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, particularly when it relates to our ethics and our uh, practices and how we live. Listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians 6, beginning in verse 9. 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 9. In conjunction with this idea of the kingdom that Jesus established by overcoming the dark forces of death, 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 9, he says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous, those who are not with Christ, will not inherit the kingdom of God? 
Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. There's a difference. There's the kingdom of God and then there's the world. And the reason why that's real and true is because Jesus has risen from the dead and he has established and rules over the kingdom of God. And he expects those of us who have embraced his cross and the wisdom and power of God in the cross, those of us who have believed that he truly is risen from the dead, he demands that we understand that we're not a part of this world anymore. And that's why. It's not because we're better than other people. It's not just some arbitrary rules. It's because these are the terms of life in the kingdom. If you want to be one of the Jesus people, if you believe that he rose from the dead and he conquered death and that now he reigns over the kingdom of God, then you need to understand yourself as a citizen of that kingdom and live accordingly. Verse 11, he says, such were some of you before you were a practicing homosexual, before you were a practicing adulterer, before you were someone who was greedy or deceptive or all the bad things that exist in this world. That used to be you, but no longer. Such were some of you, but you were washed in the blood of Jesus on that cross. You were sanctified because Jesus has become our sanctification to pull us out of the darkness of this dying world into the life of the kingdom of God. You've been sanctified. You've been justified. Things have been made right in the name of, and notice what he calls Jesus here, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul uses that language, especially in 1 Corinthians. If you read the first, uh, the opening pages, he doesn't just call Jesus Jesus. Nothing wrong with calling Jesus Jesus. I've been doing it all the time right here. The scriptures do it. It's great. But here's my point. Paul is particular on many occasions throughout his writings to refer to Jesus, not even as Jesus, not as Jesus our Savior, but as our Lord, the Master, the Boss, the one who tells us what to do. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Anointed One, the Chosen One, the King, our Master, Jesus Christ the king. That's who he is. And so we've got to live with that kind of mentality where we don't think about what the world says or what we used to do or what our sensibilities tell us. Who cares? It doesn't matter. You're not a part of this world or this nation. What we believe is that Jesus overcame the death that all this world is running headlong into and that he's built the kingdom of God and has called us into it into a different kind of lifestyle. And so he says in verse 12, yeah, all things are lawful to me, as they would say, but not all things are profitable. All things may be lawful, you may say, but I'm not going to be mastered by anything. Well, why not, Paul? I've already got a master in the kingdom of God. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food. But God will do away with both of them. I believe this is the mentality that people had. Hey, eat. Don't do whatever your body tells you because you know what? Everybody's going to get killed anyways. Everybody's going to die. Paul says, you can't think like that. Not if you're one of the Jesus people. You can't believe like that. He says, yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, the King. And the Lord is for the body. Now, God has not only raised up the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. In other words, Jesus' resurrection, the fact that Jesus overcame the darkness of death, and the fact that he, through that victory over death, has built the kingdom of God, you have to live a different life because his destiny is your destiny if you're one of his people. Amen. And if you leave him and abandon him for a life in this world, then you've left and abandoned the life that he offers you. And that leads us to our third pillar of what we believe. Not only do we believe in Christ and him crucified, who has proven that the wisdom of this world is actually foolishness, and the gods of this world are no gods at all. There's only one God, the Father. 
Not only is he Christ and him crucified, but he's Christ and him crucified who overcame the darkness of death and has built the kingdom of God to which we've been called and we must live in accordance with. The third thing is that this isn't the end. I mean, we're not going to always be in this kind of deal. You know what I'm saying? The way Paul would describe it in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 17 is this way. If anyone is in Christ, if anyone has come to the King who was crucified, then he's a new creation. The old things have passed away. All things have been made new. You might say, I don't know about that. Not all things. And to that I think Paul might say, well, okay, fair enough. They've not been made new yet. Remember what he said in that paragraph we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18? He said, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to we who are being saved, it's the power of God. Some days it doesn't feel like we're very saved or safe. It doesn't feel like all things have been made new. But they have, and they are. Listen next to the way he talks about it. I think this is what he's talking about. I may be wrong. Somebody correct me if, if I'm missing this. But I think this is what he's talking about in 1 Corinthians 7 when he's talking about marriage. He's talking about basically, hey, don't stress out too much about being married, not being married, or whatever your economic circumstance may be, or whatever your ethnic background. Don't stress about that too much. Verse 29, he says, But this I say, brethren, the time has been shortened. The time has been shortened. He speaks at the end of verse 31, if he talks about it. Well, let's just go ahead and read it. He says that those who have wives should be as those who have none, which is weird. And those who weep should be as those who do not weep. And those who rejoice as though they didn't rejoice. Jesus, we shouldn't be happy. And those who buy as though they did not possess. What are you talking about, Paul? We're supposed to buy stuff and act like we don't have it? What do you even mean? And those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it. Why? Because the form of this world is passing away. It's going away. Something new has come and is coming. The way he talked about it in 1 Corinthians 15, did you notice the language that he used, the creation language he used in talking about the resurrection of Jesus? Look at 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 20. He says, but now Christ has been raised from the dead. And look at what he calls that, 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 20. He says, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits. The first fruits. The first little leaves popping off, the little buds popping off on the end of the tree. The first tiny little green plant that you didn't ever think was really going to come up, it's coming up. We believe that the new creation has come. And we believe that the new creation is coming more and more every day. That's what we believe. Because Jesus was crucified to dethrone the powers of this world and to prove that there's one God, really, the Father. That Jesus was raised from the dead to prove that all the powerful things, they've all been conquered and there's really only one kingdom where there's security and joy and peace. And that all of us who are in Christ, all of us who've taken up our cross, all of us who have bowed our knee before the throne of King Jesus, new creation is happening. And you know it, those of you who are in Christ. All the troubles you used to have, all the things that used to trouble you, they still do, sort of, but not nearly as much. Or at least now you know what to do about it whenever they do. All those sins that used to actually define you so that you were an adulterer, you were a liar, you're not anymore. It's not like those things you never attempted to them, but 
they're just not, they're not what's in your life. Something else has sprouted up and grown up in their place. Things like righteousness and sanctification. You've been redeemed. It's all different now. All things have become and are becoming new every day because of what Jesus the King, the crucified one, has done in your life. This means is at least two things. Uh, or maybe I should say the way new creation is being accomplished is in two ways. One is the forgiveness of our sins. Because this is actually, I think, the big holdup for us. You say, yeah, new creation sounds good. Actually, I'd love a new start. I've been trying to get a new start all the time. I keep switching jobs for a new creation. I keep moving to a new neighborhood, hoping that maybe this place will be my little new creation. I keep finding a new romantic partner because I think, hey, there we go, new creation. All things will be made new in my life if I just get that. I get a new job. I get a little more. All that stuff. Well, look, that's all that foolishness stuff. It's not bringing new creation. All it's bringing is the kingdom of death and destruction. But what Jesus has promised is new creation. And here's two things. One is forgiveness. All those bad things of the world, you can't fix them with the new job and the new place and the new friends and all that. You're not going to fix it. And you're not going to fix it on your own either. The only way it's possible is because of the forgiveness that Jesus offers, which means that you were never good enough and you never could be and you never will be. And that is perfectly fine. Just as I am, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. That's it. That's what we believe. Is that Christ, the one who was crucified, Christ, the King of all kings, loves us and gave himself for us and offers us forgiveness of our sins. Isn't that what Paul said? The gospel that I first preached to you is that Christ died for our sins. New creation doesn't happen because we're so smart or so wonderful or we're even so loyal to Jesus, though we must be loyal to Jesus. New creation happens because Jesus offers us the forgiveness of our sins. And every day as we struggle and as we fight and as we frankly make a lot of failures and mistakes, um, we look forward to the day when the new creation won't be a promise of the future or something that's just barely sprouting up in our hearts and in the world around us, but when it comes into full bloom in the resurrection from the dead. We not only have forgiveness now, but we have the promise that we will, though we may die, live again. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 42. He says, So is the resurrection of the dead. The dead will be sown a perishable body, but it's raised an imperishable body. It's sown in dishonor, but it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, just like Jesus was on that cross in weakness, but just as Jesus was raised in power, so also will we be raised in power. That body is sown a natural body, but it's going to be raised a spiritual body. And please don't think that a spiritual body means a less solid, a less real, a less meaningful body. Opposite. It means a more solid, a more real, a more meaningful body in a more meaningful existence. Verse 45, so also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul, and the last Adam, Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual isn't first. In other words, the new creation hasn't come. Or the way Paul would put it, the plant doesn't come before the seed. And that's why we're still longing, because we're just still little seedlings that God's growing up to make into something better. The first is of the earth, earthy. The second is from heaven. And as is the earthy, so also are those who are of the earth. 
And as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. And we have borne the image of the earthy. But in the new creation, when all things really have become new, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So stop thinking in flesh and blood terms. Stop living for flesh and blood. Stop living for this world. Be one of the Jesus people who believes in the cross and in the power of the resurrected and risen Lord Jesus Christ. Stop living for this world and know that we're looking for something else. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We're not all going to sleep, not forever. But we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. Just like whenever one morning you wake up and all those plants that were just tiny little green sprouts, they all bloom out into something totally different. Like you just blinked and it was there. The dead will be raised imperishable and we will all be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable and this mortal in the new creation must put on immortality. But when all this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? We won't remember whenever we get there. It won't mean much at all. If we do, I guess we'll just kind of laugh about it. We won't be weeping for sure because we'll be in the new creation where righteousness dwells and all things are right and as they ought to be. Can I just say this has to dominate us, y'all? This has to dominate us. And dominate us in terms of our, our allegiance to Jesus, our King. It has to dominate us so much that in our, in our conversation, in our, in our actions, that this is what we're trying to tell people about. The forgiveness of sins and the hope of the resurrection. This is our deal. Because of what Jesus did in the cross, because of His resurrection from the dead and His reign over the kingdom of God, we proclaim this good message that there's forgiveness of sins and hope for a future. And I have to say, I've thought about this and reflected on it, and I'm, I'm, I'm speaking out of repentance right here, and I'm calling all of you to repentance if you share with me in this failing. You know, the past several months, so much of the talk in our world, that world that's just foolishness as far as God's concerned, has been about physical health and the physical body. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with that. God says we should be wise and prudent. Jesus himself preserved his health. The Apostle Paul preserved his health. But there's a place where we cross the line from being wise and prudent in this fallen creation, and we begin to obsess over it in neglect of looking forward to the new creation. We are not afraid of death. We're just not. We can't be. We shouldn't be. Because, oh death, where is your victory? Oh death, where is your sting? And please understand, I'm not saying that we need to be foolhardy and just, you know, jumping out of airplanes without a parachute and whatnot. But I'm just saying, we're not like the world. The world tells us the most important thing is your physical health. The most important thing is to stay alive. No, it's not. The most important thing is to be in Jesus Christ. And to be a part of and to be eagerly looking toward the new creation. That's what we're looking for. And you know what? Frankly, we live risky lives. Paul did. That's why Jesus did have to come to him and say, stop being afraid. Stop being afraid. That message that you preached at first, you keep on preaching it because you're a part of the new creation. And so though we may die, yet we will live in Jesus Christ, him crucified, risen and reigning over the kingdom of God, the creator of all from the beginning, and the bringer of the new creation for all of us. Let's bow our heads. Our Father in heaven,
Thank you for the gospel. Thank you, Jesus, for coming to show us the Father, to be the way to the Father. We can't imagine the pain that you endured in the cross. But we're thankful and we rejoice in your kingdom victory over death. And we pray that you'd help us to be as people who, uh, though we may weep, would be people who are not those who weep. That though we may buy in this world, we would be those who don't really possess anything in this world. That we would understand the time is short and the new creation has come and is coming. Make us eager for that. Give us courage in the face of this world, in the face of our own failings, and most of all in the face of death. Remove our fears. Make us people that aren't afraid of that, but actually long for um, whether it come through death or through your return, the new life that we're looking forward to. Um, make us brave in this world. Make us people who would go on speaking so that we would believe more firmly and that we would make others to believe and be saved as well. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.